Well, good morning. We are glad you're here today. I love it when our kids are involved in worship. Can you just let them know one more time how much you appreciate? So I want to begin today by asking you five questions. These are questions, depending on your answer, that help determine how you view the world, how you look at the world. Ready? Five questions. Here you go. Number one, where did I come from? Not like the state or anything, but where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? And where am I going? The answers to those questions, parents, we need to be able to answer those, right? Grandparents. And we need to ask those questions to our kids, to our teenagers, to our students. Because the answers to those questions will depend on our worldview, how we view the world. The first question, where did I come from, deals with our origin. Am I made in the Im- was I made by a creator in the image of God, or am I just a product of some you know, ancient soup, warm soup that, that took place thousands or millions of years ago? Some would say, right? My origin. Who am I? That's my identity. That's my core values. Who am I at the core? When everything's stripped away, who am I? Why am I here? That's meaning, purpose. Why did God put me on this earth for these few short years I get to live? How should I live? That's morality. What determines right and wrong? Where's my anchor of right and wrong? Where am I going? That's my destiny. I close my eyes and that's it. Or what happens after I die? Now, the answers to these questions, again, are, form, the, form the lens from, through which we see the world. If I put on a pair of rose-colored glasses, I would see the world with a rose tint to it. If I put on sunglasses, I'd see the world through a, through, in, in a darker way. And so it is with our worldview. It's how we see the world. One of my favorite definitions is this from Norm Geisler. He says, our worldview is an interpretive framework by which one makes sense of life and the world. And there are, a, there are a lot of worldviews. Let me go through a few of them quickly. First one is naturalism. Naturalism says there is no God. I just evolved from animals. The, the universe is a closed system. And so after I die, that's it, lights out. Another one is secularism. Secularism is like naturalism on steroids. Secularism says, okay, no God, so I am going to live life to the fullest. I'm going to use my time. I'm going to use my money. I'm going to do my things my way because you only go around once in life, so you got to what? Oh, I'm not the only person that remembers that, right? You only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get, right? Naturalism, secularism. Then there's postmodernism. Postmodernism says there are no objective truths. What's right and wrong is determined by culture. It's determined by society. 
And so what was wrong 100 years ago, those ill-informed people, it's right today. Or what was right 100 years ago or 50 years ago is wrong today, postmodernism. Pantheism uh, is another one. Pantheism, pan is all and theism is God, all is God. God is all and all is God. Everything is God. And so this was made popular, if you remember, by the Beatles back in uh, the 60s. It's an Eastern uh, religion. And then made more popular by the 150 Star Wars films that have come out, right? Let the what? Force be with you. You're God and I'm God and everything's God. And so this, this deistic force is all around us. Let the force be with you. Pluralism is another one. Different world religions represent equal validity. It really doesn't matter as long as you are sincere, as long as you believe. I, I, I can't remember where I, where I heard this, but, but I, I listened to a guy the other day, and he said, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe in something. That's pluralism. I like this one. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. God just wants me to be happy and nice to other people. And he only intervenes when I call on him. If I need him, you know, he'll come. But most of the time I don't, and he just stays in his cosmic corner. But then when the test results come back poor or, or, or I lose my job or something happens in my family, time to pray, right? So I'll get together and pray. And so I call on him when I want to. And then one more, new spirituality. All people pray to the same God or same spirit, no matter what they call that. It's kind of like pluralism, except that this has a karma twist to it. If I do good, good things happen in my life. If I do bad, bad things happen in my life. Now, while we know people who hold to all those worldviews, we also know that when we live in a culture, it's easy, isn't it? for those worldviews to kind of rub off on us. Barnett did some research, and he looked at believers, those who say, I've trusted in Jesus Christ as the only way to have a relationship with God. 61% agree with a lot of ideas in new spirituality. 54% resonated with postmodern views. Um, 29% said, you know what? I, I like some of that secularism stuff. And so it's easy for the culture to rub off on us. It's easy for the culture to impact us instead of us proclaiming and demonstrating in the culture what it means to follow hard after Christ. So take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 18 through 31. Uh, Paul is writing to a church that was messed up in a prominent city, and he deals with a lot of issues. And the issue I believe he deals with in these verses is the issue of worldview, is the issue of what do you believe at core? What is it that you really stand for? And the problem is for Corinth and us, the worldview of the day in Corinth 
had rubbed off on the church. That's one of the reasons Paul's writing this letter. They got a lot of issues. For one, there were a lot of Greek philosophers in the area taking them to different gods. There were temples all over Corinth. And uh, they, they, they were seeking wisdom through these Greek philosophers, not intellect to benefit people, but, but, but a way to figure out how to get to God. They also were a very uh, prosperous area with those two seaports we've talked about. And so a lot of money was flowing back and forth, and they were using that money for whatever they wanted to use that money for. There were also issues uh, regarding entertainment. Man, in Corinth, there, were all, there was all kinds of entertainment. The, the Olympic-type games came uh, to Corinth every other year. There were gladiators. There were all kinds of things. There was drinking like crazy, not just social drinking, but the Corinthians were known for their drunkenness. Remember, when a Corinthian was depicted on the stage, he or she was a drunk. And they were known to pursue pleasure because you only go around once in life, right? Right? So you grab for all the gusto you can get, and that's what the Corinthians did. They were into sexual immorality like crazy. In fact, the word Corinth became the verb to Corinthianize, and to Corinthianize meant to participate in perversion or sexual immorality. Now, one thing Paul does in this book, here's what he says. He says, without Jesus, that's the way to go. You agree? That's not a trick question. You agree? Without Jesus, why not? Without Jesus, you just live like you want to live. Without Jesus, there's no deeper meaning. It's the here and now. So you go for all the gusto you can get. You take your time and you invest it however you want to invest your time because there's, there's no ramification to that. You take your money and you use it the way you want to do it. Buy another house. Buy another car. You take your time and you use it the way you want to use it. Without Jesus, then secularism is the way to go. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, later in the book, he, he, he says this, if the dead are not raised, Jesus didn't come, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Why not? But Paul says, Corinthian church, Jesus has come. Jesus has done his work. So we do things differently. We act differently. We have, Paul will tell us in chapter 2, the mind of Christ. Go figure that. And so when we think differently, our worldview we think differently, and we what? We act differently. We proclaim and demonstrate differently than the culture. And we impact the culture instead of having the culture impact us. Paul's going to drive home this point over and over and over again in today's passage. The Christian worldview is Christocentric. It is centered on Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus. The Christian worldview is Christocentric, centered on Jesus. Always comes back to him. And any time in our lives, in our theology, in our church, in our families, any time we get away from Jesus, God, that's when the issues come. Chapter 1, verse 18. 
Paul says, for the word of the cross. So Paul's going to take these two worldviews, Christocentric worldview, Christian worldview, and the non-Christian worldview. He's going to just put two before us today. And he says, for the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is the message of the cross or the gospel that we're separated from God. God loves us so much. He sent his son. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And we can have a relationship with the living God through Jesus. That's the word of the cross or the message of the cross, the gospel. And he says, it is folly. That Greek word means stupid. It is senseless to those who are perishing to those who are on the road away from God, to those who are on the road to destruction, spiritually speaking. But to us who are being saved, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, to believers, it is the power of God. It transforms our life. There is nothing like it. The message of the cross is the story of creation. It's the story of the fall. It's the story of redemption. The message of the cross is our basis on which we live our lives. And the message of the cross did not just come in the New Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after man had fallen, they had sinned against God, that happens in chapter 3, and right after that, God speaking to Satan says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he shall bruise your head. He will crush you, and you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to put him on the cross. You're going to cause him pain, but there is one coming, Satan, who will crush you, and that's called in theology the proto-evangelicum, the first of the gospel message. The word of the cross began back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And Paul is saying here that this word of the cross, this gospel message, it is the power of God. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It transforms us. It makes us new. It allows us to see things that we've never seen before. It opens our spiritual eyes. Fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, when I was in the sixth grade, I had a friend named Andy. And Andy's dad was the superintendent of schools. And they always went to the away football and um, uh, basketball games, and Andy would invite me along. We had a blast, and they had this old car. I don't remember the make of it, but it was humongous. It was huge, station wagon, and it had that seat in the back that looked out the back window. Remember those? Those were so cool, and Andy and I would sit in the back in our own little world as we traveled the back roads of, of Oklahoma, and one day, we went to Pawnee, Oklahoma to watch the Pawnee Bears play the Perry Maroons. And I'll never forget sitting up there in the stands, sitting by Andy. We were talking, goofing around, and watching the game. And Andy uh, wore glasses. Andy wore these black horn-rimmed glasses. They're in style again. Go figure. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm sitting there with Andy, and I thought, that'd be cool to try these on. And so I tried on Andy's glasses, and it was like, my gosh, I can see. There was, a, there was a scoreboard 
at the end of the gym. And you could see who was ahead and who was behind. I could see with Andy's glasses. I didn't want to give them back. And I went home and I said, Mom and Dad, here's what happened to me. And they felt terrible, as well they should have. <laughs> so the next day, my mom called Dr. Hoot. Dr. Hoot, uh, uh, she called Dr. Hoot for two reasons. One, you could always remember Dr. Hoot's phone number, 336-2020. I thought that was pretty clever for an eye doctor. <laughs> and he was the only guy in town. And so I went to Dr. Hoot, and I got glasses, and my whole world was different. I could see. I don't know what I was doing before that. I don't know if I could see the board or not, but I didn't know any different. But now I could see. Now, there's another story to that that I don't have time for, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, this, this girl that I liked and she liked me, she just had made it public that she did not like me uh, anymore. I mean, go figure that. That was hard for me to, to comprehend. Uh, but... Um, but uh, she started liking a guy who wore glasses. So when I showed up a week later with glasses on, <laughs> my friends razzed me for a long time. Much therapy is taken to get me through uh, that time. But I could see, right, for the first time. It was the, it, it was the power of, of the glasses that allowed me to see things. And that's what God has done for us. He has opened our eyes to see. Those who are perishing can't see. Again, I don't, I don't know what, I didn't know any different before I put on those glasses. And when you trust in Christ, it's like putting new glasses on. You can see this message of the cross that used to be fooling. Are you serious? A God hanging on a cross? Doesn't make any sense. But now it's the what? It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Paul says to the Corinthians, you've got a couple options. You can depend on man or you can depend on this power of God. And Paul uses an illustration from the Old Testament. He goes back to 2 Kings. It was a time when Israel... They were, they were uh, getting ready to, to be uh, attacked by Assyria. And they said, ah, we can't do this. We're going to get pummeled. And so they made an alliance with Egypt. They hated Egypt, and Egypt hated them. But they made an alliance with Egypt in order to stand against Assyria instead of depending on God. And God said, what are you doing? My power is sufficient for you. And he ended up doing a miraculous thing that Israel could see. It's not Egypt, it's me. And so Paul just summarizes that story in verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Because power for salvation, whether it's physical in the Old Testament or spiritual for us, belongs in the hands of God. So Paul says, where is the one who is wise? The, the Greek philosopher of the day. And there are a lot of Greek philosophers in Corinth. Where is the scribe? That's the, that's the Jewish, um, the, the expert in Mosaic law. Where's the debater? That was the public speaker, kind of like the, the motivator of the day, the motivational speaker. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here's what Paul is asking there. Has anyone in their studies, in their wisdom, ever figured out how to have a personal relationship with God? And the answer is no. No one in their wisdom has been able to figure out how to work with it because you can't. So where's the scribe? Where's the wise man? Where's the debater? For since, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, by the way, the wisdom of God there means his plan of salvation to redeem fallen humanity. Back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? Proto-evangelicum, the gospel, his plan to redeem humanity. The wisdom of God, the world did not know God, so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about Jesus on the cross. The Jews, he says in 22, they're always looking for another sign. They want something. Jesus, give us another miraculous sign, they asked Jesus in, uh, in uh, Matthew. Jesus said, no, I'm not, you've seen it all. I'm not going to give you another miraculous You won't believe if you get another miraculous sign. People today are looking for the same thing, right? I want to see a miraculous sign. Then I'll believe. Or the Jews, or the, the, the Greeks, uh, they're looking for wisdom. I'm going to figure my way to God. If I can understand creation, then I'll understand. Then, then I might believe in God. If I could understand, if I can finally wrap my little brain around evil and suffering, then I might, uh, I might understand God. If I could figure out this is a barrier for me, right? If I could figure out why some people are, are, are born into poverty and other people are born into affluence, if I could figure, that, that's not fair to me. If I can figure that out, then I might trust in God. But God says, um, it's all futile. The Jews demand a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. But look at verse 23. But we, what? Preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, that word is scandal and scandalous to the Jews. They couldn't believe that their Messiah would be hanging on a cross. Deuteronomy says, cursed is any man who hangs on a cross. Our Messiah cannot hang on a cross. That is scandalous. And folly, stupidity, the Gentiles just laugh at it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's the one who opens our eyes. The Christian worldview is always Christocentric. It's always about Jesus. It's always about his work. He came. He died on the cross for our sins. And only through him can we have a relationship with the living God. For those who don't, are not wearing their spiritual glasses, they can't figure that out. It is scandalous, and it's something to laugh at. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, is the power and wisdom of God, verse 24, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Now, in verse 26, Paul He's spoken kind of up here, theoretically, theologically. And now he's going to get practical. 
He tells those who are reading this letter, look around the room. Just look around the room. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling. Remember when God put those glasses on you and you could finally see. You finally got it. You said, what was I missing all this time? I thought this was foolish. But now I see this is the power of God. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Look around the room. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you have noble blood running through your veins. But God shows what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, and God shows what is weak in this world to shame the strong, what is low. God chose what is low to despise the world and even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. What's Paul saying there? God is not impressed by your resume. He's not impressed. Look around the room. Where are all those Greek philosophers? Now, there surely were some Greek philosophers who came to Christ, and there were powerful people who came to Christ, and there were wealthy people who came to Christ. But Paul says, God's not, not, God's not impressed with your resume. He doesn't need you on his team. He can get along fine without you. But he chose you. He chose you to be sons and daughters of the creator. You were separated from him, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bridge the gap and bring you into a relationship with the living God. But he's not impressed with your resume. He doesn't care if you belong to the Decane Club. He doesn't care if you have a, a membership at Oakmont Country Club. Now, if you do belong to the Decane Club, I need to have lunch with you because... It's really good there. And I'm impressed by that. But God's not. God is not. It's only through Jesus Christ. We're, we're all the same level, right? At the foot of the cross. And God did not choose us by our resume, Paul explains in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Sounds like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, doesn't it? For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works. Why? Why? So that no one can boast. Now, Paul says, I'm going to tell you something to boast about. Look at verse 31. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, believers, we have something to boast about. In that verse, uh, uh, 131, Paul is summarizing Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Here it is. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this that he understands and what? Say it again. That he understands and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness uh, in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, as believers, we have something to boast about. We don't have 
to be ashamed of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the power of God for salvation. We don't have to pretend we're not a believer. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be embarrassed that our stand is different, that our worldview is Christocentric. We never have to be ashamed of the name of Jesus. In our schools, we don't. In our workplace, we don't. In our neighborhoods, we don't. In our network of friends, we don't. Paul says, boast about this, that I have a personal relationship with a living God. I can boast about that. I have confidence in that. I don't know a lot of things in my life. I don't know a lot of things that are going to happen. But I know this, I have confidence in this, I have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, and nothing will ever change that. And when we live parents boasting in what Jesus has done in our life, not ashamed, guess who sees that? Yeah, our kids. And guess what that does for them? It gives them confidence as well, that they can boast in Christ as well. And, and, and generations are impacted when we understand that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. In chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, I want you Corinthians to know, and Pittsburgh 2019 to know, I want you to know what you can boast about. I want to give you confidence. I want you to be walk out of here. Paul would say after reading this letter, I want you to walk out of here today knowing this, that we can boast in these five things. These five things will never change. We can know that these five things will be with us, the rest, if we're a believer, with us the rest of our lives. Here's what God has done for us through Jesus. And these are things we never have to be ashamed of. We shouldn't be ashamed of. We should proclaim and demonstrate with our life. Five things. We're going to take communion in just a bit. And when you hold that cup in, in your hand with the bread and the, and the juice, if you're a believer, I want you to think about these five things. I want you to think about the work that Jesus has done for you. Remember, our worldview is Christocentric. It is always focused on Jesus, and here's what Jesus has done. The first thing we see in verse 30 is this, I am in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. No human being can boast in the presence of God, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. God has called you to himself. He has set you apart. You are in Christ Jesus. That is our identity. Remember those questions we asked earlier? Who am I? I'm in Christ. He's the one who brought me to himself. He's the one who paid the penalty for my sin. He's the one who protects me. He's the one who nourishes me. He's the one who will usher me into heaven itself. I am under the influence of, I'm under the authority of, I live in honor of Jesus Christ. I can boast about that because I know that he loved me so much that he came and died on a cross for my sins. And he, through his spirit, indwells me. I am in Christ and will forever be. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 3. In your notes, I said, Jeremiah, that's my fault. It should be Isaiah 43, so you can change that. Listen to this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Will you read that with me? 
I have called you by name. You are mine. One more time, believers, just think about this. God is saying to us, I have called you by name. You are mine. And here's the result of that. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. When you go through tough times, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When you go through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. I'll never give you a temptation that will knock you over. I am there with you always to give you the strength that you need. When you walk through the fire, when you go through some tough times, you're not going to be burned. You're not going to be consumed. Look at verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. You can boast in that. Isn't that something to boast about? I am in Christ. Number two, Jesus is my wisdom from God. Verse 30, because of him you are in Christ. Who became to us, Jesus now, who became to us wisdom from God. Remember when I was sitting there in that gym in Pawnee, Oklahoma, I thought I I never knew any differently or never knew any different or differently. Anyway, you grammarians can check me out later, but I didn't know anything different uh, than what I was seeing, right? But then I put on the glasses, and then I could see. And there was a day God called us to himself, and, and he opened our eyes to see, and Jesus became the wisdom of God, the, the, the plan of God from eternity past. Jesus became the wisdom of God, the plan of God to redeem sinful humanity. And I saw that. And for the first time, I thought, man, that is true. What was I missing? What took me so long? I get it now. And that's something to boast about, isn't it? It's something to boast about that God in his sovereignty opened our eyes to see how we could become a child of God. In Jesus, I have the wisdom of God. Number three, Jesus made me right before God. There should be a comma after right. Jesus didn't make me right before God, but Jesus made me right before God. Look at verse 30 again. What word would that be? Jesus is our what? Righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is the when I trust in Jesus. He makes me righteous. Think, when you think of righteousness, think of three things. First of all, when I trust in Christ alone, only way to have a relationship with God, three things happen. I am declared righteous. I trusted in Christ. He did the work for me, the work I couldn't do on my own. My eyes were open. I now, under, I now get it. And I say, I trust in Jesus. And God says, I declare you righteous. That's called forensic righteousness. The judge declared us righteous. Then he says, I'm not only going to just declare you righteous, I'm going to make you righteous. And so he sends right then the Holy Spirit to live within me. And that's called imputed righteousness. He takes the righteousness of Christ on the cross, the death of Christ, Jesus who never sinned, who paid the penalty in full, and he takes that and he imputes it in, he accredits it to me forever. So not only you're righteous, but you're righteous forever. And then... Then he sends the Holy Spirit. Then he sends the Holy Spirit, and that's called uh, practical righteousness or empowered righteousness. Now I can actually live a life that pleases him. That's something to boast about, isn't it? I am righteous before God. He declares me righteous. He 
makes me righteous and he empowers me to be able to live a life that please I don't I can't live a life on my own that pleases God I fail every time but when I trust in the Holy Spirit to empower me to do what he's called me to do now I can obey him now I can develop as a follower of Christ now I can live in him and God has said you are right before me forensic imputed practical Number four, Jesus set me apart. Jesus became the wisdom from us, righteousness, and sanctification. We looked at that word last time, or a couple times ago. Jesus set me apart from the foundation of the world. He said, you're mine. He just didn't decide that because of your resume, remember? By grace, you're mine. And... I have some specific things for you to do. I'm not just waiting. You're not just sucking air until you die and go to heaven. I got things for you to do today. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not a works, so that no one will boast. Ephesians 2, 10 says, because of all that, for we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his work of art. Think about that. You are God's masterpiece. That's something to boast about, isn't it? And he created us in Christ Jesus, not just to die and go to heaven, but he created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, we should walk in them. What's that mean? We should do them. We should live them out. God put you on this earth for a special purpose and a special reason. That takes us back to our first five questions. Why am I here? And God would say, you're here because I've got these good works for you to do. I knew these before the foundation. I prepared these for you before the foundation, of, before you were ever a human thought. You are a thought in my mind. I knew when you were going to come on this earth. I knew what you were going to be doing, but I didn't choose you because what you've done, you are mine, and I got special things for you to do. Here's a question I got to leave you, uh, leave you with. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? When you know what that is, man, that gets you out of bed in the morning. When you know what that is, that brings true satisfaction in your life. You're not just putting in time. If you're, if you're just saying, hey, I, I go to work and I come home and I go to work and I come home. Man, God did not create you just to go to work and come home. God created you to do some good work, some special things wherever he's planted you. What are those things? If you, don't, if, you, if you do not know the answer to that question, send me an email and I'll get you to the people on our staff who can sit down with you and have some assessments and look at your spiritual gift and show you where you can start serving, maybe here or maybe somewhere else. But when you're using those gifts, man, there is nothing like it. And God said, I made you special. I have special things for you to do. So don't waste your life. Find those things. And then when you find those things, you know what you can do? You say, man, I got God who loves me so much, not only did he send his son to die for me, but he's gifted me and resourced me and experienced me 
to do things that bring so much satisfaction to life, I can hardly stand it. I'm going to die and go to heaven one day, but I'm not waiting for that. He has me here for a specific reason. What is that reason? Paul says, when you get that, man, you got something to boast about. One more. Jesus redeemed me. This is a word from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, say, I, uh, I, um, I, I ran in some bad times, and I owed you some money. I, I would become your servant. Now, I, I, I didn't like, it's not slavery like we think of. I would go to your farm or your workplace, and I would work all day for you, and then I'd have to go home. I'd have to do another job to, make, uh, to, to, to have money for my family so they could eat. But I would be kind of your indentured servant, right? So what I would do is I would be thinking of, is there a relative of mine who has the wherewithal to pay my debt so I don't have to do this? And that relative, if they had the wherewithal and they paid my debt, was called a kinsman redeemer, okay? Kinsman redeemer. So God takes that practical aspect of the Old Testament, like he always does, and he says, let me show you how this works spiritually. Jesus bought you back. He is your kinsman redeemer. We just shorten it and say what? He is my redeemer. He redeemed me. I was in slavery to sin. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't pay my way out. And so Jesus came. And he purchased my salvation. He purchased my freedom. If I'd been in the Old Testament and that kinsman redeemer had bought me out of debt, I'd have probably written him a thank you card, right? I'd have probably thanked them the rest of my life. I'd have probably went out of my way to honor them. And so... How do we respond to Christ? The one who redeemed us from our sin. Two verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are what? Zealous for good works. When you know that Jesus has redeemed you, you are zealous, or should be, for good works. And then right before we take communion, as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, think about this. Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed, that's the same word as redeemed, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious what? Blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus gave his life. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died on the cross so that we could live. Communion is open to anyone who's a believer. You don't have to be a member of our church. If you're not a believer, let the cup pass. No one's going to know. No one's going to care. Instead, we would encourage you to consider the work of Christ that he's done for you. But if you're a believer, take the cup. There's a bread and the cup both together. And hold it. We're going to take it together. But while you're holding it, reflect on what Jesus has done. This is why we take communion, right? 
to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. The worship team's gonna be singing a song. And I, I don't know how you prepare for communion. I know some of you read passages on your own. Some of you sometimes look at the passages on the board. Some of you like silence today. You can do all those. The worship team's gonna sing a song. And the song they're singing is basically a summary of, of this passage we've looked at today. And think about this. As you're holding bread, you can, we can boast. We can be proud of. We have confidence in the fact of what Jesus has done. Think about those five things. We are in Christ. We have the wisdom of Christ. We have been sanctified. We've been set apart. We have been given righteousness and we have been redeemed. And you're going to hear that in this song. And if you're a believer, you're welcome to take the bread and the cup. If you're not, let it pass. Shame. 
no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid that Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples and he says this is my body this is, represents my body it's going to hang on a cross for you eat this always remembering me let's take the bread together and then after uh, that meal Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of, of a new covenant, the shedding of blood. Drink this, take this every time you do it and remember the work I did for you on the cross. Let's take the cup together. Fathers, that taste is in our mouth, this we know. We are not ashamed of Jesus. We boast in what Jesus did for us. Our confidence is in what Jesus did for us. We will honor him. We'll live for him loudly, not only proclaiming him with our, with our lips, but, Lord, with all the actions of our life. Lord, allow us to boast in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing before we go. Will you join me in singing? I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no will. 
privilege to pray with you before you go whatever you have going on in your life. We'd love to pray with you. Father, we pray that today as believers, we would leave here with our our head held high. We do not have to be ashamed of who we are in Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed that you opened our eyes one day and allowed us to see the truth. We're not ashamed that we are righteous before you, set apart for you, and bought back from the slavery of sin by the work of Jesus on the cross. Help us be those who boast, not in ourselves, but help us to be those who boast in what Jesus has done for us. And help us to demonstrate that to a watching world, many who don't have the glasses on yet. And use us as an instrument they can see, finally see what it really looks like to trust in Jesus. Father, we leave here today as those who are boasting about what Jesus has done in our life. And we pray, Lord, that that would be seen and heard in our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our places of work, our network of friends, that our worldview is always Christocentric, centered on the work of Jesus. We pray in his name.